Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. This week, back like Spinal Tap is intrepid and constant traveller Thea Lenaduzzi. Thea. Dialed up to 11, hello. There we go. You've been walking? <laughs> I have. I want to say like a young Theresa May. I'd rather you didn't. Okay. I'll, I don't see the relevance. No. <laughs> no. Uh, how was your walk? It was good. It was long. It was hard. Do you like that? Like that is, yep. Yeah, that's, that's what, what you I wanted, wanted to do. Yeah, hundred kind of... miles of beautiful Cornish coastline. It's fantastic. Kind no of... screens. Ha... Lots of crab. Lots of chips. Yeah. You, need, you need chips if <laughs> exactly. you're going to be walking. Did you take the dog? No, he's too young. Oh, he's he's too young and also too much of a liability at this stage. Do you want... would have been off a cliff chasing a rabbit? Or do a you sheep. want to get to the point where you're doing? I'd it? love to. Yeah, but we also need to train him to sleep in a tent. With us or outside the tent without oh, running off. It just was too much. When too, I had a dog, soon. we used to take him on holiday and at five o'clock in the morning, he would wake up because of the noises of the countryside oh, and just right. start barking at everything. Alf has stayed away with us somewhere. He, so he's not, he's not scared of being away from home as long as we're there, I think, but a tent might be pushing things. And yeah. also bear in mind that Alf is, I mean, your dog was about the size of Alf's head. Yeah. So when when we're talking about a big dog, it becomes <laughs> much harder. So you didn't miss us, basically, <laughs> what you're saying. I, I was. That's not what I was saying. No. We did mention a lippo. I've now. I think we've now up to. I think we're now up to seven <laughs> consecutive mentions of it. I'll chuff through the next one as well. <laughs> Quick reminder: you can get a cheap subscription to the TLS if you live in the USA or Canada. Go to podcast.the-tls.com. If you live anywhere else, including the UK, then go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod19 and you'll get five issues for just five pounds or five dollars this week it's a history special of the paper and we lead with an essay by ian baruma about Anne frank we then look at other things like the lion's tea shop family some tudor public figures and the actual anniversary of peterloo so we thought we'd better get our resident history expert david horsepool to explain it all deftly also the most expensive painting in the world is salvatore mundi by leonardo da vinci or is it? We'll muse on the shenanigans around this work of art and expensive works of art more generally with Federico Varese. And last week, we sadly learned of the death of the great American writer Toni Morrison. The novelist Lady Hubbard was taught by her and has watched a new documentary about her life. She joins us on the line to pay tribute. The most expensive painting in the world is Salvatore Mundi, initially judged to be the work of the school of Giovanni Boltraffio, then by Boltraffio himself and bought in 2005 for a little over £1,000. By 2018, it had been confidently attributed to Leonardo da Vinci and bought by a Saudi prince for $450 million. It has since disappeared from view. Is it really by Leonardo? Is it ever possible to know for sure? And what does this tell us about the market for fine art and its tenuous relationship with reality? Federico Varese has told the tale in the TLS this week and joins us in the studio now. Federico, hello. Uh, nice to be here, thanks. Firstly, let's start with who painted this. How confident can anyone be that this picture is by Leonardo? Well, the picture, as you said, has got an extraordinary story. It went from being attributed 
to a student of Boltraffio, eventually to Boltraffio, and then finally to Leonardo. There is a huge dispute over who painted this painting, and uh, some scholars, such as Martin Kempt, argue that this is Leonardo for sure. And he really believes that, doesn't he? Even now, even with all the, the quibbling, he's very confident in it. He does, story. he does. And he's just about to publish a book, a very long, thick book uh, on, on this, arguing for the attribution to Leonardo as a Yes, <laughs> no doubt, it is Leonardo. Now, other scholars have pointed out that Leonardo might have had a hand at it, uh, and then others also think uh, he didn't. <laughs> so it's a huge controversy that is yet to be resolved. And how resolvable are these controversies, really? Because ultimately, some of it is just a feel, isn't it? You have an expert, and they've seen a lot of things that have been confidently attributed to Leonardo, and they get a feel, and they look at a painting and say, that gives me the same feeling, therefore it's Leonardo. Yes, what is extraordinary about this story is that there are no documentation from the time that he ever painted it. We know he might have painted a Salvatore Mundi, but not this particular one. So we don't have a trail, a documentary trail. So all we are left with is the, the eye, the sort of feeling that an expert has got by looking at this painting that it is a Leonardo. And what I argue in the piece is that this feeling can be deceptive, of course, and people might have different feelings. So what I I discuss in the piece is that art history seems to be caught up in this uh, connoisseurship tradition that disregards to some extent historical facts. What I also try to argue in the piece is that judgments, at least in my field, which is not art history, it's more social sciences, always tend to be probabilistic. We have a certain probability of knowing a relationship in society. While here we seem to be going for a deterministic yes or no kind of attribution, which I find it strange. It's interesting there, you, you alluded to your more conventional stomping ground being social sciences, yes. and, and many of us will know you for your, your studies of the mafia. I was wondering if it seems you've found uh, some of the same techniques in which you would trace that kind of community or organisation in studying this particular piece. You sort of follow the money. Yes, I should uh, confess that was the, what got me interested yeah. in, this, in this story. The story has got many dimensions. The painting has been in the free port of Geneva, where paintings and uh, works of art can be there for decades without ever moving yet changing hands. The painting itself was bought and sold through quite strange financial instruments in Hong Kong, in Switzerland. So there is a financial dimension to art market, which I find very interesting. And I cite in the piece a report from the European Union about the risk of money laundering in free ports. Not necessarily that there is, but there is a risk of, of money laundering. So that's one aspect that interests me. The second aspect, of course, is Russia. That's what I've been working on. And one of the owners was Russian. And, and thirdly, and somewhat most interesting even, is that there is a parallel between how mafiosi see themselves and uh, art attribution, which I can tell you if you want. Yes, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if you think um, about The Godfather, you know, the, the most uh, iconic, uh, probably one of the best movies ever made about the mafia. This is a movie which is not correct. Historically, it's incorrect. There are many factual errors which we can discuss. And yet, real mafiosi loved it to the point that they copied yeah, the way mafiosis behave in the movie. They copied the lines. And so, in a sense, you have an hermeneutical circle here that the real mafioso copies a fake in order to convince everybody else he's the true item. So how does this relate to Leonardo and the Salvatore Mundi? Well, the restoration of the painting, uh, which has been done by a very respected restorer, was based on copies of copies of Leonardo. So in a sense, uh, we have uh, somebody looking at a copy of a copy that is used to make it real, <laughs> because by looking at the copy, then you decide how to restore it so that you can see it is a true Leonardo. And I find that deep analytical similarities between my field and this piece I wrote for you. There's a broader point though here is also that nowadays we want genius to be individualistic. There to yes. be one great genius who sits down by themselves in a room and paints the painting and that's it. And yet Really, and this is true in playwriting in the 16th century and before, and it's true of the art world. It's schools of people. People might have done a little bit. In this case, a restorer has completely changed the background, put a black colour yes. on it, which may or may not have anything to do with the intention of, of the original artist. But we, we so want there to be one animating spirit 
But that isn't necessarily true, is it? There may be lots of hands in this. Absolutely. And Leonardo is an extraordinary, extreme case of this. Leonardo is called the universal genius. And somehow he's been taken out of history and made to be a universal genius as if he was living in outer space. And yet I think very good scholars have shown how Leonardo borrowed from his contemporaries. I've just been to, to Florence to an exhibition on the library of Leonardo. And so this scholar has studied which kind of books Leonardo had in his own library, from which he copied a lot of what we think is his original invention. So we need to place Leonardo in his historical context. That's, I think, is extremely important. It's extraordinary that uh, this is not being done more often. The second point that you mentioned is workshops. The Renaissance work uh, was based on workshops, which is a bit like an advertisement agency. So there is certainly an element of originality and even geniality, and yet it's a teamwork. There were helpers in the studio. Leonardo had a studio that ranged between three to ten people. These people prepared a lot of the paintings and also made copies constantly. It was a business. So we should not forget that there is a financial commercial dimension to Leonardo's work. And there are famous commercial disputes he was involved with because often he didn't finish the paintings or there was disputes over the final product. So there are letters, contracts which have not been met and second copies being made. So all of that dimension, I think, is very important for me who come, as you just said, from a social science, economic history background. You draw a parallel in your piece when Da Vinci first became positioned in this way it was by large part was Benito Mussolini kind of wanting this figure to hang that kind of ideology really? on of, of a singular genius f- apart from other men representing Italy Rep- yes. Re- rep- of course <laughs> was the Italian yeah. uh, genius yes there was a very important exhibition in 1939 in Milan at the Museum of Science which actually inaugurated the museum and that was centered on Leonardo the genius who has invented everything spanning from art mm. to architecture to military engineering of course the idea that Leonardo is a genius dates obviously also in the 19th century some French scholars for instance, was one. Even Vasari himself, to some extent, puts him outside history. So Leonardo has been the target of this process that you were referring to of the genius, the artist on his own. And I think we have to recognize that there is a teamwork, as there is a teamwork in producing a newspaper, there is a teamwork in producing a book. I like to say there's only an individual genius when it comes to (laughs) uh, producing at least, but no one would agree with me. Uh, You mentioned the money. You're used to tracing money. Mm-hmm. in what you're doing when you're trying to work out the network of, in a mafiosi sense. Mm-hmm. What are the risks of this? Because you talk about the Geneva Freeport. There's loads of paintings there. They never leave. They change hands. This is money that could be used for proxy payments for other things. It could be used for money laundering because it's effectively, there's no real price determined other than what two people happen to agree. So if I want to settle a debt with you for something else, I could give you $2 million for a painting that's worth $50. But by doing that, that painting becomes magically worth $2 million. That's absolutely true. And that's why I find it fascinating, the, the study of the art market for, for somebody like me, because uh, there is no f- set price. So if you buy a house, there is a market value that you can establish, you can see the difference. But uh, a painting is worth as much as you pay for it. And as we can see in this case, the price can fluctuate massively. So you can... Uh, I'm not saying this is happening in this case, but you can settle bribes, you can pay bribes through art, you can pay and do money laundering, of course, through art. Now, the free port in Geneva is an amazing place, which I encourage you to visit if you ever are there. It's only a few stops from the center of town. Within a custom area, in effect, there is an art gallery. (laughs) inside it and there are a lot of also mailboxes you can hire for free and then inside the the free port there are restoration rooms uh, exhibition rooms pieces of art can be there for decades so in theory they are in transit from one country to another but there is no time limit on how long they can be in transit and so a lot of um, exchanges occur within the free port and it's said to be the biggest museum in the world (laughs) given the amount of paintings are there and of course the free port has been mentioned in several court cases of looted art I think there's been a reform within the free port after those cases but it's certainly a very odd uh, 
entity. And of course, it's not the only one, the one in Geneva. There is one in, uh, in Singapore and there are others. And quite often these things just sort of end up staying there, as you say, until disputes are resolved. It just made me think there have been high-profile cases where someone's bought the most expensive truffle in the world, for example, and then it's been held in one of these free ports while they've been figuring out what to do with it. And in the meantime, it's perished. <laughs> so it works better with unperishable Yeah, exactly, items, exactly. Like, uh, we that. should probably be clear. What's happened to Salvatore Monday? So this gets bought... $450 million, that's considered high even by people who believe it to be a Leonardo. Yes. And there's a suggestion it's now going to be uh, displayed in Abu Dhabi, but it's disappeared. It was supposed to appear last year. It was. And then it went quiet. Now, yes. what, what's happened to it? Where is it? What do we think's happened? First, the price is the highest price ever paid for a painting, $450 million. Even those who believed it was a Leonardo, they thought it would go for $100 million. So this is $450, huge amount of money. The buyer was not known at the moment when it was sold. And then it transpired it was a Saudi royal. And then uh, the museum in Abu Dhabi said that the painting was going to be displayed in the museum. And then in, with everybody's consternation, the display was cancelled. Now, the latest uh, informed guess is that it is uh, hanging in a, in a yacht owned by the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. But this is the latest rumour in the press. Now, of course, from our point of view, we want to make sure the painting is kept safely. I mean, this is a very fragile piece of art. Whatever you might think regarding who made it, it is still a genuine Renaissance painting of great value, artistic value. So we hope that it is kept in a way that is safe um, for the painting, because obviously this is a very fragile piece of art. And as a viewer, I also hope we can see it soon. The National Gallery had it for a while, and the National Gallery shouldn't be displaying items that are going to go for private sale. Yes, that's a rule in the National Gallery that uh, you wouldn't uh, display works of art in an exhibition which are on the market. So technically the painting was not on the market when it was displayed, but it was owned by an art dealer who, as soon as the exhibition ended, sold it uh, after a few months after the exhibition and sold it to a Swiss uh, person who, who ran part of that free port, who himself then sold it to a Russian owner, who then sold it to the Saudi. We're not making any allegations here, but once you start saying the world of Russian politics, which is notable for its corruption, the world of Saudi politics, which is notable for its corruption, this is an unregulated market. That's the one thing that we take from this, that this may be all perfectly legitimate, but however you look at it, this is a market where all sorts of things can happen because there's nothing to stop them happening. Yes, it's unregulated. And also the world of uh, auctions is uh, somewhat unregulated, but we are making no allegations, of course. Of course not. <laughs> I think that's right. Sure, sure, sure. I'm getting dangerously close to doing that, so let's, let's, let's leave it there. Federica Verezzi, thank you very much indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
It is a striking fact that as armies of liberation landed on the Normandy beaches in the summer of 1944, Anne Frank was still alive, in hiding and in hope of survival. It was not to be. When autumn came, she and her sister Margot were loaded into a cattle wagon and sent to Auschwitz and died in Bergen-Belsen just weeks before British troops entered. She nearly made it. Her diary thankfully did. It's now been translated into 60 languages, including a Japanese manga version. It is a sanctified product of a diabolic era. Ian Baruma this week asked the question, when reviewing the complete works of Anne Frank, why the diary has entered into the global consciousness. Is it the universal story of the pathos of innocence brutally defiled, or is there something in the writing itself? The piece begins our history special, which includes a whole lot more as well. So who better than David Horsepool to tell us about it? David, hello. Hello. Let's talk about Anne Frank to begin with, and then we'll see where else we get to in the lovely history issue. Is this a significant historical document, or is it just a famous one? I'm not sure that it's that significant a historical document. Obviously, it's an extremely famous one. I don't think it tells us anything that we wouldn't know from other sources. And in that sense, it's not unique. And of course, it stops before the family were discovered. So it's not an account of the worst part of the Holocaust itself. I was wondering about this. If you look at um, history of the Holocaust, like Lawrence Reese's recent single volume history, look in the index. Anne Frank doesn't appear in the index. Hans Frank does, the, the man who was in charge of Poland during the Second World War and responsible for the Holocaust there. So in those sort of historical terms, it's possibly not that significant. But that said, even at the time of the occupation, people were aware that such documents would become significant and the government in exile, the Dutch government in exile, actually appealed for people to conserve their diaries and witness accounts of what was going on in occupied Holland. And Anne heard that appeal on the BBC and started sort of crafting her diary to be published after the war. So it was very much a conscious decision on her part. She was writing her diary anyway. She'd been given it before they went into hiding. But she began crafting it as a sort of historical document. Baruma makes a point about where this sits in Dutch narratives, because you have a Dutch family. I do. Well, my mother's Dutch, and she she lived through the war, um, and her father was a doctor in, at the time. She has memories of you know German soldiers coming into her house and so on, and her father helping out um, Jewish patients on, on the sly, as it were, that my mother had to kind of open the back door of the house to let her father out and go through the back of the garden to go and help the, the next-door neighbours. And that, in fact, she tells me those next-door neighbours sort of disappeared during the war and everybody feared the worst. And, in fact, they came back after the war. They'd gone into hiding. They'd been hidden, as the Franks were. Where does Han Frank fit in the Dutch narrative of, of the Second World War? Because Baruma's point is that, actually, there is an ignoble Dutch history of collaboration. And yeah. so the Dutch has a certain ambivalence towards, a sort of sense of guilt towards Anne Frank, that, it, as a state, it effectively failed to protect her. Well, that's certainly true. Obviously, they didn't protect her. And they were brutally efficient, the Dutch civil servants, at um, giving up the Jewish population to the occupiers. They kind of went along with all that they were required to do. And again, the Dutch government's exile realised that this was happening and said at the time they're rightly proud of how conscientious and dutiful they are, the Dutch civil service, but they have now been conscientious and dutiful in the plundering of our country. So that definitely went on, and I think it's right to say that among the occupied countries by the Nazis in the West, the Dutch have the, the it was the highest proportion of the Jewish population who were slaughtered in the Holocaust. I mean, it, 75%. Yeah. So it was, it was even more in places like Poland, but in Western Europe, Holland was worse than anywhere else. Sort of, how does Holland confront its past in that regard? Does it? I think it's less of a source of debate, of course, these days, because you know there aren't that many people around who have direct memories of it. But people did used to talk about people being wrong in the war, really? meaning you know they were on the, they did the wrong thing. But of course, as with so many collaboration occupation stories, 
people switched pretty quickly to a narrative of a noble resistance and rather more people seemed to be in this resistance than seemed to be the case at the time when the occupiers were there. But they're happy to celebrate and, I mean, she's seen as kind of a, a Dutch saint is the point that Ian Baruma makes yeah. it. Yeah, and and since 1960 her house, the Achterhuis, where the secret annex is in Amsterdam is kind of on the tourist trail. I've been there. Um, You've been there too? Yeah. yeah. Isn't it strange how we've all... There aren't that yes. many tourist places in Western Europe where you, there's a fair ch- chance that everyone in a room will have been there. Yeah. It's something that's, e- as it were, easier to comprehend, much easier to take than... I know people do visit Auschwitz. We had that very good freelance piece by Ian Sansom about going there. And I, I was in Poland recently and I didn't go there, but I... I travelled on the train with some people who had just come back from there. Um, And I think it's a very, it's a different kind of way of approaching that story. It's possibly easier to take children along to it because it's a way of showing them something terrible that happened, but it's around the edges of it. The story sort of closes before the worst part of it. And actually it's a piece of writing. I mean, my daughter's 10. She's read The Diary of Anne Frank. Mm. I remember well, I don't know. She's which, read, which, yeah, because I wonder which version. Because, yeah, she'll have read um, a version yeah. of it. I read a version of it when I was about that age. I yeah. think it's a thing that you give to kids as a way of almost, this is your route into learning about the Holocaust. But what you really learn about when you read it, I mean, there is, of course there's stuff in it about the Germans and what is going on in the world and, and, and the, the horror that's kind of creeping in on them and the patch of sky that they... Uh, trying to occupy that Anne writes about but what it's mostly about is the true unpleasantness of sharing a small space with a lot of other people some of whom you're not related to and the person who comes out well she doesn't come out worse but she's uh, sort of Anne's least favourite person almost is her own mother she she writes about her father in these completely adoring tones and her mother kind of gets the brunt of the stroppy teenager as it were so there's there's a real genuine sense that you're not reading something that's been gussied up for popular consumption and as did actually happen when it was first published that stuff was sort of cleared out of it as was the stuff about her sexuality her emerging sexuality or her sense of herself and her own body so it's only more recently that the true document that she was writing came out and one imagines that if if she'd been alive after the war it wouldn't have been published under her name as it has been now we probably would never have seen it yeah the jewishness of it there's been through history the history of its publication there were consecutive attempts to de-jewish it yeah and de-particularize it yeah and ian broom is quite good on this because i think there's a i think we assume now now that we, as it were, have a problem with that, we don't think that a story can't be universal unless you kind of strip out its markers of Jewishness or Christianity or Muslimness or whatever, and we, we, we think we can take that. And so people want to, as it were, put the Jewish identity of Anne back, which seems completely inarguable as an idea. But against that, Ian Broom makes the point that they were extremely assimilated and you know they weren't particularly observant Jews to the extent that apparently Otto wanted to give Anna a Bible with the New Testament in it as a, as a Hanukkah present and <laughs> and this was uh, you know her, I think as her sister said perhaps dad it'd be better to to give that on St Nicholas Day sort of more traditional Christmas celebration in Holland than actually as a Hanukkah present. And Anne Frank, crucially, didn't she didn't see herself as representative of anything. No, I don't think so. You certainly get from the diary that she had a real, as it were, a sense of herself and yeah. a sense of her future. She wasn't a total kind of naive or a kind of an innocent in that sense. Which she is, was writing for publication, as yeah, you mentioned before. Yeah, and she and she writes about herself and she, as it were, looks at herself and she looks at the people around her and she makes characters of the people around her too. As Baruma points out, you know, she called the the irritating dentist that she had to share a room with, who's I think it was another German who's called Pfeffer, but she calls him Dussel, which means doofus or dimwit. So, you know, she's got she's also got a sense of humour and yeah, 
I mean, it, it, it's interesting in a lot more ways than one expects. Where does it rank then in the sort of pantheon of of historical diaries? It was written for publication, which not all famous diaries were, but it is t- paying testament to an experience that was so necessary to document. Yeah. Well, so, I think in some senses. It's right at the very top. It's the most famous diary that was ever written, I think, I mean, in terms of how many people have read it. As we said, how many places are there where diarists come from that we've all visited? Yeah. Their, 60 their languages. Home. It's translated 60 languages. I mean, a Brit would, would sort of mention Peeps? Pepys' diary yeah. in the same breath, I think, which was obviously very deliberately not written for publication, yeah. written in code, as we know. Um, but... I suppose Pepys's diary is the, is the nearest, but it's not as as well known. And also, Pepys will is is now being and will continue to be one imagines judged by history in a very different way to Anne Frank. We had a piece with the headline Samuel Creeps, and actually he, he, he's, no, he's he's no innocent. No, now he's slightly reduced to yes, if you know a bit more about him, a bit creepy and. He buried a cheese during the Great Fire of buried London, kind of thing. Um, and he is quite. There's more to him than that. Claire Tomlin's book about Pepys is brilliant. Is um, we've we've probably not got much time to do the whole of the history mm-hmm. issue. What would you most like to talk about? Well, we should talk about Peterloo, I think. Yes, it's the anniversary on Friday, which is three days away from. The, we're talking about we, the date of the issue of the TLS. Date of the issue of the or TLS. Scene. Now we did have a. We talked about uh, last year because there was that weird confluence of books. And a film that came out to celebrate the 200th anniversary a year early. Mike Lee's film. You hated the film. Uh, yeah, I went to a screening of the film. I didn't hate it quite as much as some of the people I was watching it with, some of whom walked out, but... Did they really? Our reviewer, Claire Pettit, loved it. Our reviewer absolutely loved it. And what I can't... I mean, I'm glad I didn't walk out because the best <laughs> thing <praise>. about... <laughs> yes, exactly. Put it that glad way I didn't post. walk out to your list. Well, the best thing about the film, in my view, was... This sounds like... The thing in the person in the audience, uh, the thing about Anne Frank was that she's in the attic. And the best thing was the massacre, by which I mean that the massacre was amazingly well portrayed in this film and staged, and it was genuinely terrifying. And it, the, what was wrong with that film to me was it was mostly terribly overacted, and everybody had a tick, and it was sort of gurning, and that all the of course, all the kind of Tories and the Prince Regent were ridiculously over the top. Yeah. So that, and people were played as geriatric, you know, barely able to walk, who in his, historical terms, I think, were kind of 45 years is old. Is that because this has been fair? I mean, the book that's reviewed by Claire Griffiths is called The English Uprising. Mm. And it's very critical to Manchester's identity. It led to the yes. Manchester Guardian being created. So there's a kind of socialist, left wing Manchester and English fetishization of this incident. But again, I mean, it's, it's, it's a shame if the consequence of that is that it. It isn't universal that it's sort of think, seen as a kind of, you know, special, you have to be northern to understand it kind of idea. The the person who was who everybody was coming to see was not a northern figure. It was um, Henry Hunt, Orator Hunt, who was a West Country gentleman and a tremendous show-off who wore a white hat so everybody could see him. And it's sort of funny, if you read the accounts of the times up to Peterloo, they're constantly laying into Hunt and saying what a terrible person braggart he is but then when peterloo actually happened and when these innocent people were cut down by the yeomans and cavalry sabers suddenly the times journalist john tyus actually says that you know this is a terrible thing to have witnessed they call and, it the times finest hour well in, yeah in that's what claire Griffiths says and, and i mean it certainly was its finest hour to that point as it were because suddenly Although they didn't support reform, they didn't support what these people were campaigning for, they realised that no one should be... We we had a thing about the Rebecca riots, which I hadn't really heard of. Who who wrote that lovely... Ely Williams. Ely Williams, lovely non-fiction piece. And actually, in terms of deaths, it was in the same order of... As Peter, it may have been slightly more than. No, I don't Peter. think it was. Well, Rebecca was probably not more, but. There seems to be lots of incidents like that dotted yeah. through history of a similar order of magnitude in terms of massacres. And well, this one seems to have caught. It's caught. I mean, you could compare it with, say, the, with the Newport Rising, which there were more people killed at. So 22 people, I think, as against 18 is the 
agreed figure with Peterloo. People aren't quite certain of it. But in the case of the Newport Rising, those were Chartists trying to free a Chartist prisoner from a jail, and they kind of attacked a a group of um, soldiers and constables. But there was actually a kind of violent element to that. There was an element of self-justification, you know, of justification and self-defence, and the people who were involved in it who weren't killed were convicted of treason. So that was what the the opinion at the time was of those people, although it's changed over time. Whereas with Peterloo, I think the great difference is a very large number of people realised, not including the government, but realised that these were peaceful protesters. And it just wasn't an idea that that people were used to. They were used to mobs. They were used to mob violence and disorganised uprising. But what they weren't really used to was the idea of organised but peaceful protests. And was that not also why, I mean, there were women and children present, so that was partly why the, the violence was so extreme because it was directed at women and children indiscriminately yes. in a way that, say, the Rebecca riots wasn't because it was mostly men. And dressed up as women. As women, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. And it's it shocked people at the time. Some people did write, you know, women shouldn't have been there kind of thing, but also they acknowledged that that they were there and the children were there and it was a family outing and it was closer in character to a fair than a... Well, it's a kind of a triumph of branding in a way because when you grow up and you hear Peterloo, you think, oh, it must have happened at a place called Peterloo, but it's called Peterloo to connect it to Waterloo. It's, the, as it were, the opposite of the great triumph of of Waterloo. and that seems to me to be... I don't know who did that, but that seems to be a rather clever piece of branding, as it turns out. You know, this great military triumph when Britain shows its best and defeats the tyrannical emperor... And then you have innocent people protesting for rights in a country that was seen as vastly unfair, not least to all the people who'd fought in the Napoleonic yeah. Wars, who'd come back to nothing in England and, and poverty and penury. Yeah, and it was an economically very, very difficult time. And lots of people were in terrible, terrible poverty and being very harshly treated, including people who, who had fought for king and country kind of thing. I could talk to you all day, David, and we often do talk through quite a lot of the day. Uh, there's all sorts of other stuff. So there's Sir John Guy, the Elizabethan banker, Thomas Harriet. John Guy writing about uh, Gresham. Gresham, Gresham, sorry, John, yeah, that's right. Gresham's history Law. Of the, Lions, uh, the History of the Lion's Tea House. Yes. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, that is uh, excellent stuff by Abigail Green. Um, so there's, there's plenty of history, if you like that sort of thing. Absolutely, and why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? David Horsepool, thank you very much. In this week's paper, the novelist Lady Hubbard acknowledges the enormous debt owed to Toni Morrison, who died on August 5th at the age of 88. Her importance as a writer dedicated to representing the complexity of black identity and culture outside the white male gaze cannot be overstated, and was evinced through the powerful assertion that black people were not merely a concept and did not exist simply to provide others with a means of seeing themselves. This assertion came in many forms, of course, not only in fiction, but also in critical essays, teaching and through her work as an editor. She was the first black female senior editor at Random House in the late 1960s. Consider that not all that long before some southern states made it illegal for black people to read at all. A new documentary, Timothy Greenfield Sanders' The Pieces I Am, about the author's life and work has recently been released and Lady was engaged in reviewing this when news came of Morrison's death. She joins us on the line now to discuss the film and the woman now, of course, with an added poignancy. Lady, hello. Hi, how thanks, are you? Um, thanks very much for joining us. You say an understandable focus on her legacy as a writer has overshadowed her contributions as an editor. Is this something that the documentary really sets out to correct? Yes, I feel it really does, and that was something I, I appreciated. I think a lot of people were not even aware that she was an editor, much less such a historically significant one. It was nice to see that highlighted in the film. And and how significant was she now now we can try and look back there? What did she achieve, do you think, as an editor? Well, she was responsible or she helped make available to the world a very diverse group of, of black voices. And I think that's really important. These are books that I was educated with. So she she introduced Tony Cade Bambara to the world. And she published the memoirs of Angela Davis. And she also published a memoir of 
Muhammad Ali. And I've always been very struck by, in particular, the publication of the work of Henry Dumas, who is a writer that has been getting more attention now. His writing inspired Amiri Baraka to come up with the term, I believe it's uh, Afrofuturist expressionism, to try and describe his work, which in a lot of ways was probably very ahead of its time. And when she published him, he had already been shot and killed in an apparently a case of mistaken identity by um, New York City transit police. His writing had never been published in book form. At that point, he was 33 years old, and his writing got to Toni Morrison, and she published it. That has a lot to do with why it's available to us now. So it's just gestures like that that really, really are very striking, and I don't think a lot of people were aware of the importance of her work as an editor. So that's just one example. There are lots of talking heads, obviously, in in this documentary. So do we get a sense from them what she was like to work with as an editor? What did she ask of her writers? Yeah, and that's really fascinating as well. First of all, I really enjoyed hearing people that knew her so well talk about her. There's a lot of really great voices in the film, and, and I feel like you get a really strong sense of what she was as a human being. It's strange because she's such an important writer. So there's one point in the film where I think she's in her role as an editor and she's helping Angela Davis prepare for a press interview. And you you see her running around and getting her water and stuff like that. So people said that she had a very, when she was in her editor mode, she, she was very focused on her writers and taking care of her writers, which I found really fascinating just because she's such an enormous presence as a writer and as the focus of attention that when she was working as an editor, she really allowed the writer she was working with to be the focus of attention. And she'd written... And she was writing, I mean, The Bluest Eye came out, didn't it, in 1970. She's a, she's a working editor then when this book comes out and it's much loved now, The Bluest Eye, but it, in common with a couple of her books to begin with, it took a while for people to, to see what was there, didn't it? Yes, yes, definitely. And that is something else that the film does highlight. It quotes from some reviews that she got at the time for her earliest work that were criticized for her focus on African-American characters, African-American life. There's one that says, recognizes her talents, and it says that perhaps at at some point she will sort of broaden her focus and start writing about larger themes. So themes that were not so focused on black characters. People didn't really appreciate what she was doing because of the subject matter. Like they were, it was criticized when it first came out as being limited because of the subject matter. And that's what she um, arguably changed. Is that the point that because she did it, the yes. idea is that she then showed the market existed, showed the need existed to have these books focused on, on these subjects. She changed the way books like that could be received. Yes, over time. And I think that um, that is another, the film offers a wonderful opportunity to see her speaking in interviews. I think over time that changed, but what I was really impressed with was her refusal to accept the idea that by focusing on black characters, she was somehow limiting what she was capable of doing as a writer. And there's one scene where someone is interviewing her they ask her if it bothers her that she is talked about as a woman writer, as a black writer. And I really just loved her response, which was, she says, no, I prefer it. And that what bothers her is the question, because um, on a certain level, it is a disingenuous question because it's assuming that those qualifiers are limiting. So part of what was beautiful to me about her example was her refusal to sort of buy into that and accept that that was true. She had uh, expressed a real commitment to the specificity of her perspective as a black woman and that that was a, a, a very powerful vantage point from which to view the world. And she saw that very clearly, and I think that's something that comes through in the film. She was also, of course, a teacher, and you you were among her students. What was she like as a teacher? What did she teach you? 
Yeah, she has been an enormous. Because uh, let's see, I was around nineteen when I when I first met her, so I was very very young, and she's always been and always will be certainly the most important influence on my life. And I remember reading her when I first read her writing and just what a powerful experience that was for me. So on a personal level, I think through her example of her work, it really made me feel I had a right to my own voice. And I kind of experienced that through her example. I think that sometimes you're so aware of how you will be perceived and how, I don't know, how that can be misinterpreted, right? Or the misuses that maybe you're being honest about your experiences, you're aware of all the ways in which that can be misused and it makes you very self-conscious, or at least it did for me. So to see her express her truth so honestly and so powerfully was enormously important to me to learning to feel that I had a right to express myself freely without worrying constantly about how um, the things I said would be perceived or how they could possibly be misconstrued because there is so much pressure, I think. And it's not just African-Americans. I think it's like if you're an oppressed minority and you have to deal with all these stereotypes and ideas that are imposed on you externally, it's very hard to not be aware and self-conscious when you're writing of the different ways that what you have to say might be misconstrued. So her example really helped me to realize that it is possible you can free yourself from it and that that is actually a very important and valuable thing. And aside from that, of course, I think that the just the lyricism of her prose and the depths of her explorations of black consciousness and looking at how the content of what she said was so intimately related to the structure of her work. It's just so beautifully composed. What comes out of that is a a recognition of sort of the power of, of rhythm in a work. So all of these things, I think it really gave me something to aspire to. You make another point in the piece, Lady, which I was struck by, which is what you're talking about there, and you talk about how she was this great chronicler of the black experience and that's what she's often known as but you kind of turn that on its head and talk about her commitment to the demystification of whiteness which i think is an yeah. interesting way of phrasing it's almost the inverse of this of the same proposition that not only did she sort of value the black experience and turn it into wonderful art she also made clear that it wasn't somehow inferior to the privileged position that was whiteness Right, right. Well, I feel like they're related. They're very much related gestures. I think the film is actually very conscious to to frame the way it tells the story of her life in terms of that gesture. And I know it from because it begins with her talking about her grandfather and his pride over his own literacy. So it sort of places her relationship to the written word and her appreciation of the power of the written word and the innately confrontational nature of being a black woman engaged in in the, the kind of practices that she was engaged in. It puts it in a larger cultural context. I was responding really to what seemed to be the way the film was framing her life, which I thought was, I appreciated it a great deal. She never wrote her own life. She didn't, you know, she didn't write memoirs. In fact, mm. I, I think I read somewhere that she she always discouraged her students from focusing on their own lives too much. How do you think she would have wanted to be remembered? Which works do you think she would have wanted to stand as a testament to her having been there? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't know which work she thought was, were more sort of exemplifying of who she was as an artist. They're all doing different things. I don't know. That's an interest. I'm sorry. I I know. I'm, that, I'm, like, I'm, I'm stuck mm. in part by her um, in an interview in, in the New Yorker a few years ago, probably about 15 years ago with Hilton Owls, when she's describing mm. her work as an editor. She describes it as a very political effort. And she says, I wanted to give back something. I wasn't marching. I didn't go to anything. I didn't join anything. But I could make sure there was a published record of those who did march and did put themselves on the line. Right. And that just right. seems to sum well, up so much of what she what she did. 
Right. It is a political gesture, right? The publication of all of these writers. And it, it is sort of like using her position and her skills that she had to and putting them to the best use. In the review, I was talking about the idea of the the black exception, that there's one exception proves the rule, that there's something very unusual about being a black woman who is such a talented and great writer, which is a way of also a, a condemnation in a sense of black culture. And I think that in part what I was saying about beginning with the power of literacy to her grandfather is sort of placing this all in a larger cultural context. So that I think is a very important gesture as well, because it does a lot of things, but but one thing it definitely does is help to disprove that idea that there's only one. I inherited a much larger view of black culture in literature, in part because she published all of these other writers, but it also belies the myth that she is somehow different or Mm. set apart through her brilliance or because of her brilliance from other black people. And then in a sense, on a a final note, I suppose this film does seem a a fitting obituary, though it was not designed to specifically be an obituary because of all of the people that it brings together to kind of talk about this life. It's it's as part of a collective rather than kind of a singular person that we remember. I think that's very true, and that's a big part of what makes it so powerful for me and for a lot of people, I'm sure. It's just, it's wonderful that it exists. She is going to be missed, and she definitely will live on. She will always live on, but it is nice to have this opportunity to see her and also to to hear other people that appreciate her and to learn about her personal life and to see her working as an editor. It's very, in some ways, and unfortunately, timely. It is a nice appreciation. Well, we feel that way, Lady, about you writing this piece for us and, and coming on to talk us about it. So, so thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Lady Hubbard, to David Horsport and to Federico Varese. Do get yourself a copy of this week's History Special or David will be all sad. Next week, the all-singing, all-dancing, super-soiree summer double issue. There will be joy, there will be cleverness, there will be a week off for everybody afterwards. We'll pick some pieces to pod about. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.